welcome to Revolutionary Women. My name is Tess Silverman. Women around the world are constantly creating ways to make a difference in their communities, and today's guest is no exception. My guest today is Simone Levine. Ms. Levine has dedicated her career to ensuring public accountability in the criminal courts. She is currently a major case prosecutor in the Orleans Parish District Attorney's Office, prosecuting some of the most serious and violent offenses in the city. Between 2015 and 2021, Ms. Levine ran Court Watch NOLA, a group that ensures transparency, ethics compliance, victims' rights, and constitutional rights in the Orleans Parish Criminal Courts. As the executive director of Court Watch NOLA, she blew the whistle on the practice of incarcerating rape, crime, and domestic violence victims for their failure to testify and the use of district attorney-created phony subpoenas. Ms. Levine has also served as a deputy police monitor in the New Orleans Office of the Independent Police Monitor. Before joining the Office of the Independent Police Monitor, she prosecuted public corruption and white-collar crime cases. And before prosecuting criminal cases, Ms. Levine practiced criminal defense for 10 years. She has served as an adjunct law professor at Loyola Law School and is an advisory board member for Dillard University's Center for Racial Justice, Delgado College's Criminal Justice Department, and Avada, New Orleans. She has also sat on the Louisiana State Bar Association's Criminal Justice Committee since 2017. Ms. Levine has been awarded the National Association of Civilian Oversight over Law Enforcement's Contribution to Oversight Award, the New Orleans City Businesses Leadership in Law Award, Tulane University's Social Justice and Advocacy Award, and Avada's Partners in Justice Award. She has been personally profiled by the St. Charles Magazine, the New Orleans City Business Newspaper, and the New York Times. Ms. Levine loves most to spend time with her two beautiful sons, Elan, age nine, and Ezra, age seven. In her spare time, she also works as a referee and judge for the USA Boxing Association. Simone Levine is running for Orleans Parish Criminal Court Judge on March 25, 2023. Hi, Simone. Welcome to Revolutionary Woman. How are you this afternoon? Hey, Tess. I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm so honored. Oh, well, thank you for stopping by. Okay, so let's get started. So I read that you grew up in New York. What part of New York? So I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Oh, okay. And specifically in Flatbush. Ah. And my parents moved out to Connecticut when I was younger. Okay. And so what was it like growing up in New York and Connecticut? Well, so we were in and out of Brooklyn. Our family uh, always stayed in Brooklyn, and so we were back and forth. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it was not easy, honestly. You know, Brooklyn is such an incredible place to grow up in, and I missed it growing mm-hmm. up in Connecticut. Connecticut was really, um, you know, it was a little bit like the Stepford Wives, mm-hmm. and, you know, going back to Brooklyn was really just my hometown and yeah. all my family was there and my people were there and my oh. community was there. Do you still have family and uh, friends in New York? I sure do. Oh, yeah, I still awesome. have a whole community in Brooklyn. Uh, yeah, and I've been in New Orleans now for 13 years. Wow. One of the reasons why I uh, moved to New Orleans was 12 or 13 years. Yeah, I... Um, I moved to New Orleans because uh, my mother's family mm-hmm. had had a home base in New Orleans and I had always wanted to move to New Orleans. And, you know, I went down to New Orleans. I got married. I had kids. I okay. took on um, an amazing job down okay. there. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, I've, I've really lived in a, a whole bunch of places. I've been yeah. blessed that way. Huh. That's really amazing. Cause, so you've had sort of like different um different takes on and different uh, states, you know, different ways of, of, I guess, how um, your way of of navigating around different states, right? So from New Yorker is being like in the, being in the city, Brooklyn is in in the middle. Um, Then Connecticut, you were saying that it was more like a, a, a suburbs. And then New Orleans is, is a mix of both, I would think. Yeah, I mean, New Orleans, defi- New Orleans definitely has both. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, New Orleans is a unique city. It has 
unique, unique, unique gifts, unique mm-hmm. mentality and unique problems. Okay. Certainly, yeah. <laughs> certainly yeah. we have problems like every other city. They, right. you know, they bear resemblance, but also they're really unique. Yeah. And uh, it's okay. important to really keep that in mind because us here in New Orleans we always feel like we're so separate from the rest of the country we don't necessarily feel like we're apart Mm. and yet some of the models that have been used in other cities across the United States and internationally frankly do work and can work here in New Orleans as well so we got to take that into mind as well okay well thank you for that so um, I read that you're a child um, crime survivor what what exactly does that mean? And would you mind sharing your story of survival? Yeah, sure. I uh, I feel like my survive my survival story is um, is is an important one because it really built the foundation in which I was able to uh, create my life. Honestly, mm-hmm. I I feel like we are. Uh, we are people that build our lives and create our lives as we go forward. And, you know, sometimes we have the foundations that we can build on strength and sometimes we don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that myself, when I I was, um, I was sexually abused as a child by a caregiver and, oh. uh, and the sexual exploitation was pretty intense oh. and i didn't have i i didn't have the words mm-hmm. as a child to really approach adults certainly my uh, actions mm-hmm. uh, spoke louder than i think my words i attempted to speak it but i couldn't and mm-hmm. i didn't have the ability to get in touch with law enforcement and convince law enforcement of the uh, trauma that I had been through as a child. But as a child, I um, I started disappearing and mm. uh, I certainly had some disciplinary history in school mm-hmm. that was a direct result of being uh, a survivor. Wow. And then when I was a teenager, when I was actually younger than a teenager, I um, I started disappearing from the house and mm. I uh, lived homelessly for a little bit oh, wow. as well. And, wow. you know, what I really understood from the situation was the incredible trauma mm-hmm. that so much of us go through as crime survivors mm-hmm. that when we are not able to talk when we're not able to give be given space mm. to get through that trauma, how it 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 seeps into the rest of your life and it affects mm-hmm. the rest of your life right. in incredibly profound ways. And in my life, it affected me in that way. And then I and I started to understand the reality of it when I was in my 20s or my 30s Mm -hmm. and started to work on behalf of other marginalized people you know people that were also voiceless in the system and uh you know what we know of crime survivors is oftentimes crime survivors uh are themselves arrested down the road because they've Mm -hmm. not been able to get the resources to help them with their trauma and sometimes people are arrested for taking the law into their own hands because Mm -hmm. they never trusted law enforcement in the first place. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're arrested for substance abuse or substance use, I should say. And, um, and it's real, you know, we have to understand that hurt people hurt people. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, How old were you when you were, um, when you were abused and how long did it last? I was six years old, and it lasted for approximately two years. Wow. Oh my yeah, and uh, it went with a lot of emotional and uh, mental abuse as well. Mm. And um, like I said, I think that that has really led me to be in a place where I um I don't accept uh, abuse when it's handed to me. Mm -hmm. And I also understand 
that it's incredibly important to think outside of the box on solutions because, you know, part of the abuse that I went through was Mm -hmm. that I didn't fit within the box that my abuser had put me in. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and I, I think, honestly, I think most people are unable to fit inside the box that they're given or they're required to be inside. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of marginalization when that happens. Mm -hmm. A lot of folks who feel that if they aren't good enough to be X, Y, or Z, that they're not good enough in general. And that leads to an incredible amount of marginalization. And marginalization means people act out. It just is. If people aren't accepted by their larger community for who they are, what they are, then, you know, that's... Yeah. Um, that's the reality that they live on a daily basis. Right. Wow. So as someone who survived a crime, I mean, this heinous crime as a child, how did that affect the way you looked at the world, most importantly, adults? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that it caused me, and I think that this is common with crime survivors, mm-hmm. To not feel like I could have protection, Mm. uh, that the only person that could provide me protection was myself Mm -hmm. uh, and that sometimes I wasn't able to do that myself. Uh But it also caused me as I grew older and I understood the level of trauma and I did get help that uh, you you can depend on yourself. You Mm -hmm. can grow yourself stronger. You can accept yourself for all the qualities that are outside of the box and uh, do um, allow you to be who you are. And I started to, when I was in my, I'm going to say my 30s, I started to, um, I started to train as a competitive fighter. And I, um, yeah, and I was a competitive boxer for a number of years. My record is five and one. And uh, it was an incredible uh, empowerment exercise for me because Mm -hmm. what I understood, it was, it was base survival, much like when what you feel when you're a crime survivor mm-hmm. and you've actually managed to survive the ordeal that you've gone through right. is when you're in the ring and somebody is coming at you uh, and you have to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. There's no other, um, there's no other basic, you, you fear so much less mm. of the things around you and you understand. And I think that this is also common for crime survivors Mm -hmm. Um, The level of fear that people walk around with in their lives Mm. is enormous. And I think that that's true for a lot of folks. I don't think that's just crime survivors. But when you're in the ring, that's the most basic fear that you can ever have. It's the absolute fear of safety Mm -hmm. with somebody um, about to come at you. And if you can protect yourself, what you realize is you can actually get through almost anything and everything. And it also allows you to be able to detect fear Mm -hmm. and understand when fear, um, when, when fear starts to play a part in Mm -hmm. your decision-making process and Mm -hmm. your interactions with the larger world Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and really one of my superpowers I think today is, uh, is courage. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that there's a number of crime survivors that are like me that have that superpower that have managed to survive the ordeal that they've been placed in and still act courageously in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really amazing that you got into boxing and that you've won championships. What attracted you to boxing and how did that even come about? (laughs) Um, well, uh, I was working as a public defender uh-huh. in, uh, in New York uh-huh. and what I understood was that, uh, we had to, as public defenders, we oftentimes received a huge amount of abuse mm. from judges at the time. And it was this, um, it was a similar abuse that our clients also faced Mm -hmm. as public defenders because they were marginalized and with marginalized people, it's easier to abuse Mm -hmm. uh, marginalized people. It's easier to treat people poorly when they're marginalized. There's going to be less, um, 
there's going to be fewer people saying things. There's going to be less pushback when mm -hmm. that happens. And as a public defender, you would also get a certain level of abuse uh, mm -hmm. that was similar. Right. And uh, I started to train right around then. And what I really realized was that I could wait until a judge finished what the judge had to say about mm -hmm. my client or my client's case. Mm -hmm. And then I also had the right to speak and to speak on behalf and speak on behalf of marginalized people that didn't have a voice. Mm -hmm. And uh, that it was not something which I as an attorney or I as a person mm -hmm. had to swallow that level of abuse. Mm -hmm. I could um, I could push right back and ensure that the person that I was responsible for in court um, had absolutely every right afforded to them uh, through zealous representation. Yeah. So um, that's a little bit of that story. Mm -hmm. I had thought, okay, I'm going to train, but I won't spar. spar sparring mm -hmm. means you practice. Mm -hmm. um, you practice in the ring. And so I started practicing and I said, oh, I'll, I'll practice. I won't spar. And then I said, well, why would you ever practice if you didn't spar? <laughs> and okay. so then I started sparring and I wow. said, well, I'll spar. I, I just won't fight competitively. <laughs> and then, of course, I started sparring. And then I said, well, why would you ever spar if you weren't? fighting competitively and then I started fighting competitively and wow. when people would ask me why I was doing it uh -huh. I would always tell them that it was because um, I fought well it mm. was something I was really good at mm -hmm. and uh, you know I think that I, I now train um, I, I now train female fighters I'm mm. also a USA boxing representative wow. um, official so I referee uh, fights. I also judge fights. Huh. And uh, it's it's a world which allows me to center on what really is priority. Uh, because when you are around fighters in general, but particularly female fight fighters, you mm -hmm. understand the level of courage mm -hmm. and the level of heart mm -hmm. that fighters come into the ring with. And um, you want to do everything in your power to encourage that, um, that courage wow. to, um, to, to blossom, yeah. you know, not only in the fighting world, but also in their lives in general. Yeah. So that's a little bit of the work that I do. Mm -hmm. Um, the, a little bit of the volunteer work I do on the side, yeah. uh, that's when incredible. I'm not running for judge and I'm not, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> prosecuting well, cases or oh seeking criminal justice reform. Yeah. I mean, okay. So let's get into that. Actually before that. So, um, do you think you can equate your, um, uh, being or, or being a boxing champion to, you know, fighting maybe subconsciously, not even knowing this, but you're, when you're in the ring, you're kind of representing all of these people, especially women who have been marginalized and you're just trying to fight for their rights as well. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the reason why I said that one of my superpowers is courage. Yeah. You know, I, one of the reasons why I think I am courageous, why I've be, become courageous is because I have been able to understand mm -hmm. when fear enters into the conversation mm -hmm and break it down before mm. it affects my actions. And uh, I can't tell you how many times I've faced people who society and community um, has told me that I had no right to face, mm. that I uh, were far more powerful than me, and um, who uh, I better back down from. Wow you know, or um, it wasn't my place to do what I was doing. Right. Um, you know, I think that oftentimes as women, when we push forward, we get this. And unless we have, it's not even just a strong self-confidence. It's not even that you need to be grounded. Mm -hmm. It's that you have to also be reflective mm -hmm. of that negative that negativity that is coming at you and be able to break it down oh. I think mm -hmm. in a cognitive and emotional way so that you right. say okay this is how it's affecting me 
I'm still going to go forward. I'm still going to walk forward. What I'm doing is right and what yeah. they're doing is wrong and I need to keep pushing. Wow. That's incredible. Okay. Um, so you currently, well, you've been living in New Orleans for 15 years. Is that what you said? No. Oh, uh, between 12 and 13 years oh, at this point. 13 years. <laughs> okay. Okay. So um, you've led um, a group called Court Watch NOLA for a few years. So what is Court Watch NOLA about and what led you to, um, to start this group or, or be a part of it? Yeah, so Court Watch NOLA was um, or is a group that is dedicated to monitoring criminal courts in New Orleans. When mm. I was in charge of the group, I was in charge of the group, I think for about six years, uh-huh. uh, we expanded the group to train programs across the country on how to create their own court watching groups so that they could also monitor their criminal courts, their housing courts, their immigration courts. Uh, and we did this nationally. With the, We did this internationally. Mm-hmm. We did it on our own. We did it with other groups. We were working with Color of Change um, at one point, which was a fantastic group to work with mm-hmm. uh, to expand court-watching programs across the country. But CourtWatch NOLA was really dedicated to ensuring that community, just like you and I, Mm -hmm. understood that we owned the courts, that Mm -hmm. yes, there was a different language that was used, but we could break down that language, we could understand that language, we could understand what was happening, and that they were our courts, that we were the ones that uh, that, um, educated ourselves on our elected officials. We were the ones who chose the elected officials. We could educate other people about what was happening in those criminal courts. And that most importantly, we would be able to lift it out of the shadows. Mm. Because when things are, when government is left in the shadows, Mm -hmm. uh, government officials and elected officials um, can get away with things which they normally wouldn't be if there was a spotlight on their activities. And that's what Corewatch NOLA was really about. Mm -hmm. We were dedicated to looking at effectiveness, constitutional rights, victim Mm -hmm. rights in the courts, uh, you know, ethics violations, Mm -hmm. efficiency. There were a number of factors that we really looked at. Wow. And is it still running? It still is running. Wonderful. I have not been executive director for for the last year, but it's still uh-huh. running. I was not the first director of Court Watch Nola. There was a there were a few directors before me, mm-hmm. but we expanded. Um, we we greatly expanded the organization when I was in charge of it. We went from oh my goodness, I think one employee to about seven or eight employees. Wow. So wow. and we really looked at a far um, greater portion of what was happening uh, and I think we had looked at before I came on. Okay. Okay. And so you are, from what I read, you're currently running for a judgeship in New Orleans. Um, I am. So what prompted you to get into politics and <laughs> why, why being, why judgeship? Yeah. So I'd always wanted to be a judge. I think that affecting people, um, having the ability to affect people on the individual level, families on Mm -hmm. the individual level, Mm -hmm. uh, victims on the individual level, and defendants on the individual level Mm. is the type of change that I think makes an incredibly important difference in our larger community. You know, um, I believe in um, I believe in change, both external and internal. I believe that if we are going to have change inside our institutions, whether that's the police department, whether that's the criminal court, mm-hmm. whether that's other courts, that we need to make sure that we elect people that are going to make that change. Some people are change makers outside of the system. Mm-hmm. Some people are change makers inside the system. Right. For me, I'm a change maker inside the system. And, you know, I uh, the, the number one change that I want to make mm-hmm. in criminal courts and, right. and specifically in the criminal court that I um, 
uh, running for election in is I want to make sure that the process is a people-centered process okay. uh, and that the criminal courts are not just a large machine that mm. just grinds forward and and does not take individual lives into consideration. Mm-hmm. I think I think that it's incredibly difficult for folks, um, whether you are a victim or whether you are a defendant, uh, to feel that the court process has treated you in a fair way. And uh, I, I think that it's something that every elected official that runs for a criminal court judge spot should really consider is how do we ensure that human beings are taken into consideration? Mm. And, you know, myself as a crime survivor, knowing that I tried to reach out to law enforcement and I tried to um, I tried to get accountability for the per- for the person that had done me so much harm, right. but I wasn't able to. There were so many different factors along the way that mm-hmm. had stopped me. Yeah. And knowing that crime survivors are in this spot on a regular basis, the few that do manage mm-hmm. to reach out to law enforcement and do manage to report crime and do have their case then passed on to the district attorney's office that then is able to prosecute it. We need to make sure that those individuals are heard and Mm -hmm. their needs are really heard in the system. Uh, And, you know, I used to be a public defender and I believe in fairness in the system. I I do believe that we can have both safety Mm -hmm. as well as fair process. And what I understand is there's really short-term solutions and long-term solutions and short-term solutions must include bail when mm-hmm. bail is necessary as a prosecutor. And I've been a prosecutor for the last year. I've seen a cycle of retaliatory violence mm. that um, has just been extreme and wow. uh, a, a process of witness intimidation, oh, which um, has, it's, 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 it's so regular and so accepted that mm. it's um, it's it's difficult to swallow when you realize the larger picture. And you know when you see that and you see and you have real evidence of that, it mm. is important to set bail yeah. either in an amount that someone is not able. So you know I believe in bail reform. I should say as well, and I do understand that the good majority should be released. But I also think that bail shouldn't be set an amount that some people can pay mm-hmm. and other people cannot. Right. And so that's part of bail reform as well. So this is some of the short-term solutions I see, but long-term solutions have to absolutely include, um, have to absolutely include trauma care mm-hmm. and yeah. mental yeah. health resources. Right. And I think one of the things that I've come to understand in that happened in New York versus what's happened in Louisiana is that when we faced uh, when we faced dire tragedy in New York, such as in 9-11, mm-hmm. there were so many mental health resources that were offered to the community at large, mm-hmm. many of them free. And in New Orleans, when it came to Katrina, mm-hmm. there was there were so few resources given really? to anyone. Wow. And so mental health needs to be part of the long-term solutions when mm-hmm. it comes to what we're looking at here in criminal um, in criminal district court in New Orleans. Okay. So I will say that there's um, another piece too. I am running on an anti-corruption platform, and that's incredibly important too. And I'll stop there uh, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. see if you if you want me to explore that or talk about something else. No, um, actually, if you would like to continue regarding that, I would be interested. Okay. Yeah. So in New Orleans, and I I think that this is true in other locations as well, but it's particularly true in New Orleans. Mm. There's really two tiers of justice that are really offered to to people. And when a judge is elected, a lot of the times they're elected through a machine Mm -hmm. um, that has allowed, you know, certain elected officials to gain advantages where others do not, other more independent candidates do not 
have mm-hmm. such an advantage. And um, that's the reason why we have to, as educated voters, look to see who is actually the independent individual that's involved in the race. Mm-hmm. When uh, individuals are elected, the same people that got them elected either through machines or through campaign contributions mm-hmm. oftentimes have a greater say or a greater type of justice mm-hmm. than um, than those people that, that don't. And yeah. that's real. And one of the reasons why we here in New Orleans oftentimes don't call the police and why there's so many victims that don't report crime Mm. is because of lack of confidence in our systems. And, you know, when there's this notion that there's two tiers of justice, one for people that know people in criminal court, and Mm -hmm. then one tier of justice where you, you get nothing Mm -hmm. because you don't know anybody and you're not connected, that people lose hope in our institutions. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm really fighting Mm -hmm. as an independent Democrat in this space to ensure that we have, um, we have a, we have a court system that sees the, um, sees evidence in front of it Mm -hmm. and sees risk, um, public safety risk for our larger community okay. in front of it. And um, and we don't take who the defense attorney is into perspective when it comes to making those decisions of bail or mm-hmm. sentencing, okay. that we don't take into consideration who the bail bondsman is that helped me get elected to become a judge mm-hmm. um, and how that affects the case that's in front of me. Mm. Wow. Really interesting. Well, thank you for that. Um, so, Simone, you mentioned that you were, okay, so you were a public defender, but you were also a prosecutor? Yes. So I have been for the last year a prosecutor in New Orleans. And as a prosecutor, I've really prosecuted some of uh, the ugliest crimes that our city has really seen some of the most dangerous crimes that our city has seen. And one of the reasons why I wanted, why I joined the office was because our rate of violent crime had gone up mm-hmm. and I felt like it was my duty to, instead of monitoring criminal court, actually be in criminal court mm-hmm. and, you know, and be an active part in that process. And I wanted to make sure that the cases that I worked on mm-hmm. were victim centered, that they were fair right. and, um, you know, and, and working with crime survivors to try to understand how I could move them closer to closure right? Yeah. and treating them well and respecting them well in the process. That was incredibly uh, important to me. Wow. Great. So as someone who's been fighting for, victims' rights for a long time, um, for the rights of others for a long time. What do you think is important to address um, when it comes to victims' rights? Yeah, um, I I think going back to my court watch NOLA days, I think it's really important that victims' voices themselves uh-huh are able to um, be heard because there's a lot of people that are speaking on behalf of victims. Right. When I, uh, and it's not necessarily their voice that sometimes you hear. Mm -hmm. When I was the director of Court Watch NOLA, we led a movement, we along with uh, victims and along with victim advocates, Mm -hmm. led a movement to stop the incarceration of crime survivors. Hmm. in New Orleans. Uh And so what we found was that victims were being incarcerated on something called material witness warrants. And material witness warrants was, it was a legal way in Mm -hmm. which uh, the district attorney's office could apply to incarcerate a victim or a witness just simply because that victim or witness would not uh, cooperate with the wow. district attorney's office. And so we produced a data-driven report where we had actual numbers of cases and the charges that the person, uh, the criminal charges the person had been victimized um, by. And um, and we put it in a report. 
and we ask for change. Wow. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, this, when you talk about victims who are incarcerated, people oftentimes get tripped up with the legal jargon. Mm-hmm. But specifically what I'm talking about is I'm talking about a rape crime victim mm-hmm. who was incarcerated for nine days. Oh, my gosh. And, and <sighs> nine days that she had been inside, you know, what was at the time one of the worst oh. jails in the country in an orange jumpsuit um, wow. until she was forced to testify against the man that raped her. Oh, and my gosh. When I think about the trauma that I went through yeah. uh, as a child, through mm-hmm. um, through sexual exploitation, and I think about the level of marginalization I felt, and mm-hmm. then putting someone into such a terrible jail, yeah, the level of confusion and trauma, I, it just it's yeah. it's just um unfathomable and right. so this practice was regularly occurring under the last uh, district attorney's administration hmm. and we along with advocates approached the district attorney and we asked him to change his process particularly when it came to domestic violence and sex crimes victims because mm-hmm. we knew that the studies showed that absolutely the majority of sex crimes uh victims and also domestic violence victims were not even picking up the phone to call law enforcement and that if there was this sanction Mm -hmm. that this would cause it the you know the rate to you know be even worse yeah oh my goodness and so um when we approached the just the district attorney about it he uh informed us that he wasn't going to change the practice and that what he was able to do was legal and um that we should simply tell the truth when it came to the numbers. And we did. And community heard us. And crime survivors that had been voiceless through this whole experience really came out of the woodwork. And um, they sued him. They sued the district attorney's office. And the lawsuit went all the way up to our Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, our federal Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh And... Normally, prosecutors' offices are given immunity for their actions, so that means that you know there can't be any uh, monetary damages that are charged to a district attorney's office mm-hmm. um, for their actions. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, monetary monetary sanctions are important because where there are monetary sanctions, then offices will change their policies. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that no, in the circumstance where there were phony DA subpoenas hmm. that um, caused the incarceration of crime victims, right. that the district attorney could be held, district attorney's office could be held monetarily uh, responsible wow. for those actions. And what had come to light was that the district attorney was creating documents that had subpoena language in it where it said, you can be fined, you can be imprisoned if you don't cooperate with our office. And then the district attorney's office themselves Uh were signing the affidavit, were signing the document. And in Louisiana, you can only have a clerk of court or a judge sign those those documents. And so that was where the forgery had come in. That's where the phony subpoena had come in. And that's what they were held liable for. So to answer your question in such a long-winded way, um, what I have really found is that victims are oftentimes voiceless and an incredibly enormous, um, overwhelming Mm -hmm. system, and they don't know who to reach out to. And they don't know how to get help with this process. Um, I should also mention a colleague of mine who um, does incredible work. Her name is Rose Preston, and um, she has written a guide that's been out for a number of years now called the Crime Survivor's Guide. Hmm. And that's a guide that allows crime survivors um, sort of a guide to get through the criminal court system. Uh Uh, Yeah. And so... So that's sort of what um, I would say about crime survivors. The other thing that I would say um, about crime survivors is that, and I mentioned this before, Mm -hmm. oftentimes crime survivors do not get trauma care and help 
themselves. And uh, we recently, a couple of us, including Rose Preston, um, just successfully got $1 million from um, our city council to create, or I should say, to expand the Trauma Recovery Center at wow. University Medical oh. Hospital. And Trauma Recovery Center is a um, is a hospital, well, it's a center in the hospital that provides uh, trauma care and oh. psychiatric care for crime survivors so that oh, they can get this incredibly important um, help. And yeah. what we know is that where crime survivors receive that help, they're that much more likely to go back to work, that mm. much more likely to report the crime to police, mm. that much more likely to not end up in the criminal courts mm. as defendants, yeah. you know, either yeah. having taken the law into their own hands or, um, or you know, having uh, engaged in some kind of substance use or substance abuse in order to deal with the trauma. That's amazing. That's really uh, uh, incredible that, you know, from what the, from what you're doing between Court Watch NOLA and the suit that you had against the, um, the DA's office, that's really amazing that you were able to held, hold them accountable for all of this and, and you know, to be able to really um, help out these victims and, and also th those who are who keep getting marginalized, you know, that's that's really incredible. And marginalized people will later, you know, hurt others. It's just, yeah. it's really b basic science. And if we want to get a better understanding of what to do mm -hmm. with crime in our community, we have to get our heads around those factors to create, um, a you know, possible solutions. Right. I'm running for judge because I really want to be able to have a courtroom which is rooted in solutions mm. and really makes those changes. I should also say, uh, I just want to correct one thing you said. Okay. Uh, we actually did not bring the lawsuit. We we blew, Court Watch Nola blew the whistle on it, but oh. there were litigators that actually brought the lawsuit. Got we it. were not involved with the lawsuit. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. Okay. So who would you credit for where you are now? Oh, who would I credit for yeah. for where I am now? Yes. Oh, goodness. Um, well, uh, I will say that I do have a sticker in my car that says um, that my ancestors would be very proud of me mm. <laughs> for where I've become. Uh, you know, I, I've recently lost both my mother and my father. Oh, so and um, my mother was uh, an incredibly, as was my father, incredibly uh, important force um, sort of pushing me on. I um, I have a number of siblings. Um, I'm really proud to mention that my oldest sister is actually the mayor of Miami-Dade, uh, oh, Florida. Wow. Yeah, so um, she's been an incredible inspiration. But honestly, the inspiration I get the most from is I, I get the most from the women that I work with inside the ring. Mm. Um, and just the ferocious courage that uh, that women and um, particularly uh, young women mm -hmm. face mm -hmm. constantly to just fight through the inner turmoil and torments that uh, they go through. I mean, I think that when you don't speak out or you don't fight back that that inner turmoil and turmoil uh, and and torment mm -hmm. um, will eat away at you. And so yeah. the, the women that I've worked with inside the ring, um, they're they're fighting back wow. against it. So that's, um, that's where I get a lot of my inspiration from. I love it. So if anyone wanted to know more about you and your judgeship or would like to um, make a donation towards your judgeship, how would one how would one go about it? Well, I can't, uh, I can't accept, uh, I can't solicit any donations mm -hmm. uh, myself uh, at all. As a judicial candidate, I'm not allowed to do that at all. Mm -hmm. But um, so we'll take the donation piece out of the equation. Mm -hmm. um, but I will say that if you want to learn more about my campaign, 
the um, the website is Simone for Judge dot com and okay. my election in new orleans is march 25th oh, wow. 2023 uh, okay. so it's coming right up yeah. uh with a possible runoff in late april mm. and uh incredibly important to tell folks uh that know in new orleans um that know people in New Orleans to make sure to get out and vote. It'll be a very low turnout vote. Mm. And um, if folks want to support through phone banking, for example, we would absolutely love that. Okay. You know, the cause that we really are starting here is um, about independent candidates, independent mm. candidates that are trying to create fair courts mm-hmm. where there are not uh, two tiers of justice where corruption um, does not play a part mm-hmm. and, you know, where we're really trying to create change by ensuring that we have a people centered process where okay. we keep people safe right. and that we're able to um, make sure that we have fair process, that people's rights are respected. Right. So if you had one thing to change that you wish you had done years ago, what would it be? Hmm. Thank goodness. I don't, you know, I, I have to say I, I live without regrets. Hmm. I live without regrets. Uh, you know, I. it's obviously the trauma that we go through in our lives is incredibly painful, but mm-hmm. uh, the fact that it um, had taught me the level of endurance that I walk with mm-hmm. now, uh, the level of courage and fearlessness that I walk with now mm-hmm. um, is for me the best gift that I have and mm. also that I can offer to others when they are trampled or they are hurt or they are confused by other people, mm-hmm. by larger systems when answers are not readily apparent okay would you say that the same thing you would um would you say the same thing if you could go back in time the advice you'd give your younger self or would you say something else you gotta repeat that question oh i said if you could go back in time would you Mm -hmm. say the same thing same advice that you would give your younger self Oh, yeah. I I think that the larger, I think the advice that I would give my younger self is the advice that I give to all younger people that I work with, which Mm -hmm. is that there are so many worlds outside of the world that you're living in right now. Mm -hmm. There's so many that you have to think outside of the box, Mm -hmm. that your experience and your whatever torment or terror that you're going through right now, Mm -hmm. that there is an exit plan that you can get out of um, that box and that there's a whole larger world outside that box that you need to have the endurance that you need to have the faith Mm. to understand that, um, that, that there is this other world that, you know, you, um, that you can reach right and you know faith is incredibly important to a lot of what i do and um you know it is also i think an element which other you can you can talk to and connect with other people through so if you're speaking to folks that are younger and um, they do belong to church, uh, churches or synagogues or mosques that you're able to um, you're able to to tell people that every once in a while you can close your eyes and just have faith that things will be different. And you 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 might not know how to get there yet. Mm-hmm. You might not have a road map. You might not have a plan to get there, but that you can get there. Right. Um you just need to have faith that you can do it. Wow. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for that. Well, Simone, thank you for stopping by, and thank you for um, giving us so much of your time and for sharing your stories. And I, I'm so amazed by, you know, your story of survival and how you have basically 
re, uh, remade yourself and, and maybe not remade yourself, but you've really um, survived and thrived in spite of everything. And now, you know, running for um, running to be a judge in New Orleans, that's pretty amazing. That's pretty badass. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really um, so honored that you came to share your thoughts and uh, your stories. And um, if anyone would like to know more about it, please connect with Simone on her website. And, um, you know, I, I really appreciate um, all your all the work that you've done to make sure that victims are heard, you know, and, and all the marginalized who just to get out of that marginalization is huge. So I, I appreciate what you're doing for them. So I think, I think it's the key to us getting out of the crime circle that we're in yeah. Tess. I really do. I think that once we understand that hurt people hurt people yeah. and you know we need to make sure that yes we uh, need to be safe and yes some people do have to be locked up until um until we can ensure safety but that that cannot be a long-term solution that right. the short that the that that the long-term solution has to be to find to find care for folks and i just want to say i am honored to be on the show of such a badass woman wow. as you, Tess. Uh, wow. I'm really honored. And you mentioned my website. I'm going to just mention it one more sure. time. It's Simone for Judge. That's S I M O N E, Simone for Judge.com. Great. Thank you, Simone. Thanks, Tess. And I will catch up with you at a later date. Have a good yes. day. I'll talk to you okay, soon. Okay, you too. Bye okay, now. Bye. That's our show for today. I've posted more information about Simone Levine on RevWoman.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in every Thursday for another episode of Revolutionary Woman. You can listen to Revolutionary Woman on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Just a little note. I've launched a Patreon account to support the show. All proceeds will go to producing and editing the episodes to give my poor husband a break for being my personal IT and production department. He wrote this. The address is patreon.com slash revwoman. <laughs>